Pints with Jack, Season 4, Episode 57. After Hours with Dr. Mark Vernon. Welcome, everyone. Pints with Jack is your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast, where Matt, Andrew and I break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season, we're eavesdropping on the correspondence of a senior demon, Screwtape, as he explains how to tempt the patient, a human assigned to be tempted by Screwtape's nephew, Wormwood. Each week, we'll be considering a different letter, untwisting Screwtape's hellish logic, and forming a battle plan for our own spiritual lives. However, today is a Thursday, and it's therefore an after-hours episode, and we are nearing the end of Barfield Month. And today, we're talking to Dr. Mark Vernon. Mark is a psychotherapist and writer with an interest in ancient philosophy and a focus on the skills and insights that illuminate our inner lives. His studies began with a degree in physics before two degrees in theology, followed by a PhD in philosophy, an academic journey which took him from the universities of Durham and Oxford to my sister's own alma mater, Warwick. His professional life began as a priest in the Church of England, from which he resigned about 20 years ago. Now, as a psychodynamic psychotherapist, he has a private practice in London working with individuals, as well as having worked at the Maudsley Hospital in South London in a personality disorder service. He is a teacher and writer, and is the author of A Secret History of Christianity, which is based upon the ideas of the Oxford Inkling that we're looking at this month, Owen Barfield. Dr. Mark Vernon, welcome to Pints with Jack. Thank you. Thanks very much for inviting me along. It sounds like a great series, and I'm particularly glad that you've had the Barfield month. (laughs) Well, we like focusing on some of the different inklings, and we've already focused on Tolkien. We've also looked at Chesterton. While he wasn't strictly an inkling, he greatly influenced them. Uh, But we're now getting to the point when we are examining some of the inklings that I feel a lot of people don't know too much about. And although I still struggle to understand sometimes what they're all about, I keep getting this feeling that they have some important aspects to share and that during their lives, we got a lot of that through some of the other inklings with whom we are more familiar, particularly Lewis. And so I I just figure it's it's time. Let's, let's, let's look at Barfield, try and understand some of his ideas and see what value we can get out of them. Yeah, well, I'm sure you said already that Lewis called Barfield his second friend, so the first friend is the one that you just kind of get on with quite spontaneously. The second friend is the one that changes you because they challenge you and make you think again. And Barfield certainly did that to Lewis. But even in a way, even more so Tolkien. It said that when Tolkien, who was that little bit older, first met Barfield, he said, I'm never going to be able to speak again unless I rethink everything because of what Barfield has said. Um, and I think that he, in a way, he, he's, he's the biggest influence on Lewis and Tolkien um, but also, in a way, is the the sort of the pearl in the oyster of the inklings, if you like, from which I think the well, the more and more you look, the more and more grew out of Barfield's ideas. But he's hidden away because Lewis and Tolkien are clearly just genius writers, so they're much much better known. Yeah, I think that is the big difference that I'm seeing. Tolkien and Lewis were simply better writers. I, I've read more and more of Barfield's stuff now as we've been going through this month, and. His writing is good, but there is a clarity with both Tolkien and Lewis that Barfield doesn't have. I feel sometimes like he's just trying to obfuscate what he's saying. It's like, ah, wasn't there an easier way to put this? And also, we often comment that Jack's ability was his ability to offer an analogy, to offer a picture of the idea that he's trying to, con- trying to communicate. And last week we had Dr. Rob Coons on talking about 
uh, how Barfield influenced Tolkien and ancient semantic unities. And when viewed through the lens of Middle-earth, that idea starts to make a heck of a lot more sense to me. That's the value that those other authors have, and I think it's the thing that Barfield could have used more of. It would have helped had he been a, a, a clearer writer to communicate some of his ideas. Because I, I think there's gold in these hills. It's just it's a matter of finding them and, and understanding it. <laughs> yeah, you know, Lewis, whatever else Lewis was, I think he did remain an analytical philosopher throughout his life, actually. Although clearly his view of life changed radically. Um, and whatever Tolkien was, was he was a great mythologist. You know, he absolutely felt the world of fairy and was able to talk um, in that way as well. And Barfield didn't in a way quite find his voice, um, but he did know what he wanted to say. And in some ways that's a gift because to get Barfield, you have to get him yourself and try and make something of him yourself. Um, whereas, you know, if you're if you like Lewis, if you're not careful, you just parrot Lewis. And if you like Tolkien, you just get into the details of the Lord of the Rings. Guilty and, and guilty. That you never quite inhabit the world. I think with Barfield, um, when you get into um, what he's trying to say, it's because you've started to see the world in the way that he saw it. And so you develop your own ways of talking about it, which in a way is what I've tried to do by telling the story of Christianity through his key ideas. Now, like most of our guests on Barfield Month, I first heard about you through the Inkling's grandson, Owen A. Barfield, when my wife and I were in England a couple of years ago. And then about a year later, I heard you on Justin Briley's show, Unbelievable, with the Reverend Malcolm Geit talking about Owen Barfield. And it was as I was listening to that episode, I, I confirmed my resolve to have a Barfield Month here on Pints of Jack and to try and tease out what Barfield has to say to us. One of the reasons that I particularly wanted to have you on the show is because I think you're doing two important things in this area. The first is that you seem convinced that Barfield's ideas have practical consequences, that they're not just simply abstract ideas. We've recently been reading the Screwtape Letters, and in one of the letters, Screwtape talks about uh, scholars reading old books. Generally, we've managed to keep old books out of the hands of, of modern people. It's only scholars that touch them. Even those are quite impotent in the hands of scholars because they spend all their time talking about where is this in their, the author's train of thought, basically doing literary criticism on it and never actually asking the question, is it true? So the fact that you, you seem to really uh, hold that this has practical consequences and value, uh, I found really refreshing. And also the fact that you're trying to communicate these ideas to a popular audience and not simply academics. As we've mentioned, Barfield himself, uh, he also wasn't the easiest chap to read. So in the same way that Lewis saw himself as a translator of the gospel, I get the impression that you are in many ways a translator of Barfield, uh, bringing him down out of the clouds uh, back onto terra firma. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I, I feel more actually like I'm... I'm, uh, I don't know, Barfield's my teacher, if you like, and um, he helps me to make sense of certain things rather than feeling I well, you know, would know what Barfield was always saying, uh, which would be a bit hubristic, but also I don't actually follow Barfield in certain ways. So, for example, if you get into Barfield at all, very quickly you'll come across a reference to Rudolf Steiner, the founder of Anthroposophy. And I've wrestled with Steiner um, quite a lot since I came across Barfield. And I, I get some of what he was onto, but a lot of it I really don't. Um, and I don't quite understand in particular why Barfield, along with other anthroposophists, 
thought that Steiner was like a new Aristotle and that the world civilization wouldn't really reform itself unless it got to grips with what Steiner was saying, much as the medieval world kind of blossomed when it got to grips with what Aristotle was saying. Um, so I don't, I don't understand that. You know, I could say something about what I think they're driving at, which is broadly that inner life matters. And in the modern world, we've forgotten that inner life matters. Um, but how you then go about um, waking up, not just your own inner life, but the inner life of the whole world, as Barfield put it, um, that's that's the key task. You know, someone like Tolkien, to my mind, does that, which is what you get when you read The Lord of the Rings. You suddenly feel, my goodness, it's not just me um, that... Uh, that can sense a vitality. Maybe there's vitality elsewhere as well. And maybe my own vitality is in some sort of dialogue with that. Um, so that, that, that's the key difference that Barfield makes, I think, is that he wakes up the world again when you engage with him. Well, we will return to Steiner and Anthroposophy in a little bit, but let's, uh, let's push on and do some of the standard sections of our episodes. Uh, so we share a quote, a drink and a toast. And since today we're going to be talking a lot about the evolution of consciousness, I chose today's quote from C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. People often ask when the next step in evolution, the step to something beyond man, will happen. But on the Christian view, it has happened already. In Christ, a new kind of man appeared, and the new kind of life which has begun in him is to be put into us. And for the drink of the week, once again, the time difference between the West Coast of the United States and England means that I'm recording this early in the morning. I am out of breakfast scotches, so I am fortifying myself with some green tea. Are you drinking anything? I'm having English breakfast tea. Um, Beautiful stuff. Enough, even though it's tea time here in the afternoon. <laughs> well, cheers. Mm. Thank you. So we're going to be talking through your book. But before we get to that, I think it'd be really helpful for listeners to grasp a little bit of your background and your spiritual journey. Would you mind just filling in some of the details? Yeah, no, thank you. Um, well, as you mentioned, I, I used to be a Church of England clergyman, clergy, church, church priest, um, and um, I was brought up in a Christian family, and it was quite easy for me to get ordained in a funny sort of way because I was always interested in theology. Um, I could sort of check the boxes that the Church of England requires um, to become ordained. Um, but the minute I got ordained, I started to get the sense that something was going wrong. Um, and in particular, I just couldn't feel myself to be comfortably kind of aligned with the institution um, for various reasons. Um, so I kicked against that and I left after a first job, which is called a curacy. So about three years in. I mean, there's a personal side to that, which is I essentially had an extended breakdown um, and things fell apart. Um, but the kind of idea side of that was I went looking for another worldview. And that's when I did my PhD on Plato, which was to try, it was to try and understand the role of friendship in Plato. But really, it was to try and understand what Plato was going on about. And I got the PhD um, and, and so on. But um, I felt I never did understand what Plato was going on about because modern philosophy just treats Plato like it treats any other thinker and like you say um, often literature is treated as well just to kind of ask you know does his arguments cohere how does it fit within his broader corpus how does he relate to other thinkers of the times you know kind of interesting in itself but pushing to one side the question of what he's actually trying to communicate to us and someone said to me at that point I think this is when I first heard the words Owen Barfield have you ever read this chap because in one of Barfield's key books Saving the Appearances he makes the observation that to understand 
people like Plato, you've got to, first of all, unthink what you think you know about what they're saying, because they wrote from a different point on this trajectory called the evolution of consciousness. But if you can do that, then their riches really do open up to you. And so that was a turning point for me because, you know, in some ways in parallel to Lewis's conversion where he suddenly realized that history could be alive and not just one series of events after another, but could have an inner meaning. So too, um, I realized that philosophy could take on its old sort of pre-modern sense of trying to help you cultivate a kind of resonance inside yourself that then could resonate with the world around you so that you felt you understood it, not because you'd studied it, but because you made real felt contact with it. And so that was the, the change that came about for me. Um, and I mean, I could say more than that, but that's the sort of um, when I think the misfiring in a way of me getting ordained, um, you know, the Church of England seemed like a good way to engage with these things. Turned out it wasn't. Um, but I found a way through Barfield to engage with them again. And so did you encounter Barfield before Lewis? Because if so, I think you deserve a medal. No, I'm sure Lewis was in the background. Um, I mean, I, I hate to confess this um, to you, but I was always more of a Tolkien man than a Lewis man. Totally um, fine. No know, judgment I, here. I, I, <laughs> I could completely submerge myself in the Lord of the Rings. I always had this suspicion that I was being told something um, when mm. reading Lewis. I mean, sometimes quite clearly, mere Christianity, you quote, that's the whole point to make it stack up. Um, but um, even in the Narnia stories and so on, um, I could never quite get lost in them. And so get that sense of just being immersed in a different world, which is the precursor to becoming re-immersed in the real world. Um, but I, you know, I, I knew Lewis and I'm sure we read the Narnia stories as kids um, and, and lots of others besides of his books. I think you'd really like the work of Michael Jehosky. We had him on the show and he's all about Tolkien. And we spent some time talking about Tolkien's subtlety and how the Lord of the Rings itself is a parable. Whereas some of Lewis's stuff is a little bit more on the nose. There's a subtlety to Tolkien's work uh, that is perhaps sometimes a better vehicle uh, for helping people look past the work and see what it's ultimately pointing to. Uh, whereas sometimes people can be a little put off by Lewis. Yeah, I mean, there are lots of ways you can talk about this. I mean, one of them for me is that a morality is always pretty fundamental or close to what Lewis is talking about. And I actually think that morality is a distraction from a religious sensibility. So the true spiritual side is actually quite amoral. It judges and assesses what's going on by different criteria. Um, and I think Tolkien understood that, you know, which is why he can have concepts like eucatastrophe um, that aren't, can't be assessed by criteria like morality, is the good guy winning and so on at all. And so that, that's just one of the reasons why um, I always feel a bit, um, I can't flow with Lewis in the way that I can with Tolkien. That's okay. Nobody's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, Barfield has a really interesting collection of ideas. As you mentioned earlier, he drew heavily from Rudolf Steiner and he was an anthroposophist for much of his life. But he then came into the Anglican church towards the end of his life. And this is one of the tensions in his story that I find both fascinating and perplexing. And I wondered what your point of view 
is on this. What do you make of Barfield's own spiritual journey? Uh, you've spoken a little bit about how he's contributed to your own, but I wonder what you make of his story. Well, I think Barfield discovered his big idea. He, he always said he had one idea, um, which is that there's an insight to the world that we've lost touch with. Um, he discovered that himself and he discovered it through philology. You know, the inklings are all into philology. Um, and what he realizes is that if the words carry meaning, the way that words change meaning over time can become a kind of record or a fossil of consciousness. And so you can track how people's perceptions of reality has changed over time. Um, so that was his kind of big discovery. He discovers it in the 1920s, really the first of the inklings before Lewis and Tolkien had got writing. Um, he discovers this and he writes about it in his first book, Poetic Diction which at one level is about how poetry works. And it works by putting words together in unexpected ways that release this soulfulness or this inner life of the words. So he discovers that. Um, quite soon after, um, he, um, ha he meets Lewis through a mutual friend, actually, who, if I've got this right, who is um, an anthroposophist. And when he starts to engage with what Rudolf Steiner had already been saying, Steiner had been around for many decades, by now, he was in the last phase of his life, giving lectures almost every night. Um, and although Steiner and um, Barfield never met, I think it's the case that Barfield went to one of Steiner's lectures once, and that either, as it were, might have met across the room, but I don't think they've actually greeted each other. But nonetheless, Barfield did say, my goodness, the thing that I've got onto, this chap Rudolf Steiner has got onto kind of squared. Um, and so that's why he then started reading a lot of anthroposophy. I mean, he, he was an anthroposophist, but it's, it's very interesting that in his mainstream works, he sticks to his own voice. Um, and whilst he gives lots of nods to Steiner, I feel he never quite takes off with anthroposophy in the way that Steiner himself did. Um, and for me, that's quite significant because I think the important thing in all these kind of spiritual quests is to stick with what you can say from your own felt experience, not just kind of borrow from others. I think it's one of the great problems actually with, certainly with Christianity, um, that uh, people sort of borrow the formulas of Christianity um, and then become a bit sort of identikit Christians rather than um, really knowing these things from the inside out, in my humble opinion. Um, and um, but so Barfield always sticks with his own voice. And that's why I think you can talk about Barfield without actually having to talk about Steiner, because he has his own genius. Yeah. So he the business about him becoming an Anglican. Well, I think he felt that his own convictions um, could quite happily sit within Anglicanism. It's just that he had bigger convictions than the Anglican Church. You know, so he didn't just think the incarnation was something that happened 2000 years ago. He thought it's happening all the time within each of us in every moment. And that when you understand the figure of Jesus properly, you don't just conceive of a new man being born, um, as Lewis puts it, but you conceive of your new birth yourself as well, as it were, opens up something about reality that's going on all the time already. Um, this, is a, it's, this is not unheard of in Christianity. It's, it's fairly standard in mystical Christianity. Figures like Meister Eichhardt, uh, Margaret Porrett, um, others write about this. But nonetheless, it's not mainstream Anglican Christianity, um, which is much more morally shaped, um, I can tell you that. So he did it partly, I think, to um, please his wife and Lewis, 
Um, both of them said that they were delighted he'd become an Anglican. His wife and Lewis both found Steiner difficult. Um, in fact, um, it, it was a real bugbear for Barfield that Lewis would engage with all sorts of people by reading them, but he wouldn't engage with Steiner by reading him. And there's just the one nod to Steiner in Lewis's corpus, The Abolition of Man, where he makes this remark. I've even heard that something that Dr. Steiner says might have something to it after all. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, so I, I think it, for Lewis, for, for Barfield, it was fine becoming an Anglican, really. It may, it's, in a way, I suspect it made no difference, except it, you know, joined him with his friends and his wife. And, um, and that's not to be sniffed at, of course. That is something of the impression that I've got. I'm, I'm, I liked the way you, you described it. The impression that I've got is that Barfield had his own philosophy and he viewed it as compatible enough with the Anglican Church. And so this was where he found his home, ultimately. There was one thing that you, when you were talking about poetic diction, and we're going to be talking about your book and the evolution of consciousness shortly, so I thought it might be worth shooting this past your bow, see what you think of it. In poetic diction, Barfield, he really believes words have power. They have soul, that there is something not not too simple they're not simple and the thing that i always end up thinking about i have a background in computer science and so when i was at university i wrestled with the ideas of artificial intelligence and what we call hard ai and soft ai basically can you simulate uh, that something is intelligent and has consciousness or can you actually make it happen and i was always on the soft side i never really thought that you could just reduce humanity to symbol processing machines and i think barfield would be on my side if if he had yeah if we had ever sat down and talked about it uh what do you make of that no i mean i think that's right i think that what barfield understands is that understanding is something from the inside insight is something aligned with the intuition Barfield said that what we go for is a felt shift of consciousness, although Lewis told him to add the word felt, in fact, in that one of his famous phrases, because um, we know it, as it were, subjectively from the inside out, whereas, um, you know, a computer and AI, even the fanciest AIs, um, don't understand, feel, have intuitions about anything, although people very quickly fall into using these words. I mean, the latest... Um, IBM machines, you know, like the computer that can win at AlphaGo, um, this debating machine that was just announced a week or so back. Um, the commentators immediately start talking about how creative it is. Um, you, you must never forget that a machine doesn't even, a computer doesn't even compute, um, as David Bentley Hart has put it. A computer is just a very fancy series of semiconductors. Um, it kind of manages... Um, uh, electrons and, and other particles across these semiconductor barriers that the human genius can then use to do what humans want to do, which is compute. Um, and because it can be scaled up and so on, it can do it much more quickly than a single individual mind can do. Um, but, you know, a, a computer can beat you at chess and not have the faintest inkling about what chess is. It can collapse it can calculate how proteins fold inside a cell another breakthrough and it gives you absolutely no insight into the nature of nature and it's really important i think to hold this apart um you know a computer could pass the turing test and you could still be absolutely clear that it wasn't conscious um you know i think you can go go so far as that which is why you know you never think twice about turning your computer off even when you bought the latest <laughs> fancy machine 
Uh, yeah, yeah, it, it's it's really true. I I, feel, I think of nothing of throwing away a, a laptop that's not working anymore. I don't give it a funeral. Well, maybe occasionally. <laughs> well, it's interesting because, you know, I think we will increasingly give our AIs ceremonies, actually. But I think the way to think about that, and that this happens in some parts of the world, like in Japan already. Um, but I think the way to think about that is a bit like they will become like religious objects to us. And like, you know, if you've got a, had a lot from, say, a Bible or from an icon, um, you might dispose of it reverently because of what it's given you. Um, but it's because of what it's given you, not because mm. of what it is in yourself that you do that. So you're kind of honouring what you have gained from the object, not honouring the object itself. And, and that's the way to distinguish between religious objects and idols, of course. That's an interesting idea. I like it. Well, let's get on to talk about your book, The Secret History of Christianity. I really enjoyed it. I wrestled with it. Uh, but with a title like that, people who haven't read it may be forgiven into thinking that it's a sequel to The Da Vinci Code. So in broad terms, what is your book about and what is this secret history? Well, I, the word secret is partly to you know help people be intrigued if it doesn't put them off. Um, and it is also to say that this is about wrestling with something because it's the shift of consciousness that really matters. I think that's when you get what Jesus was about. But I only use that because, of course, Jesus himself talks about the secrets of the kingdom. Um, and I think that things like parables, his aphorisms can only be understood as provocations to sort of precipitate a different sense of things. You know, if you try and read the parables as moral tales, some of them work, the Good Samaritan can work like that clearly, but the vast majority don't actually. In fact, they start to look rather amoral and disturbing, you know, when they involve large, making large sums of money and so on. Um, and I think that you can um, reconcile that when you realize that Jesus was born at the time when this different experience of what it was to be human was kind of bubbling up. It was ready to, um, sort of explode onto the world um, and he kind of crystallized it catalyzed it um, and sure enough it, you know it did so I mean should I just sort of backtrack a bit and try and uh, say something about uh, you know what 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 was going on at the time and so on sure thing go for it yeah so I mean another way of putting what Barfield discovered was um, what's sometimes called the axial age which is a, a more mainstream subject now various very big Philosophers now work with that idea. Charles Taylor, for example, the Canadian philosopher, Robert Bella, who wrote a tremendous book about the evolution of religion. Um, and it's broader to the idea that in the middle of the first millennium BC, human experience started to change. And in particular, human individuality was born in the sense that people felt they could have increasingly autonomous lives compared to the world around them. Now they weren't spended, isolated, alienated, lost individuals um, as you know people fear we would become now. Um, but nonetheless, for example, they, they began to question religious ritual and religious rite. You know, so you get the prophets in the Hebrew Bible who will start saying, you know, God doesn't want your burnt offerings. God wants um, a reconciled heart. Um, your inner life counts. Um, independent of and really the religiosity around and about. Um, similarly, Socrates in ancient Athens goes around saying, look, you think the ancient traditions tell you what courage is, tell you what a good life is, tell you what friendship is even, do you really know yourself? And so ask these questions that make people turn on themselves and often they just don't like it at all. So Socrates gets into trouble. Um, I think a similar thing happens with the Buddha in India. He's a kind of Hindu heretic. 
um, if I can anachronistically word, use the word Hindu, um, but you know, meditation and so on is born rather than the great sacrificial rites of the Vedas. Um, and similarly in China, particularly with Taoism, figures like Lao Tzu and Xuanzi, um, they start asking you yourself to take some risks by not just following the old rituals um, and uh, having the courage to see whether you yourself can work out what it might be to flow with the Tao. So this starts to emerge across cultures, but particularly around the Mediterranean, um, you have this sort of three, four, five hundred years leading up to the turn of the millennia, as we now see it, zero AD with the birth of Christ. It gathered more steam in the intertestamental period. Um, you know, so, for example, synagogues were born. There's not a single synagogue in the Old Testament. They're all over the place in the New Testament. And I think that synagogues are places where individuals would gather to study for themselves rather than, say, going to the temple to take part in the collective rituals and burial practices change so that individual burials become possible rather than being buried with your kin. Um, the Bible itself, you know, starts to get written down in extended form and reading rather than orality starts to cultivate the sense that you've got to make sense of a text because of your private engagement with it rather than, say, taking part in a great recitation with all sorts of other people in a particular place at a certain time of year and so on. So all these things start to create this sense that the individual can directly communicate with God. Monotheism itself is born because you need a sense of your own individuality to even know that God might be one because as it were, the I amness of the divine finds a mirror that can catch its reality, its ontology in your own I amness. Um, and so sure enough, um, Barfield helped me see that Jesus is the culmination of this process because as you know, Orthodox Christianity says, this was an individual who, because he was fully human, was also fully divine, was, an was the incarnation of God. That made sense to me, to me in a way that it never had done before. Um, you know, I'd always treated it as a bit of an intellectual paradox or something to be taken on trust or, you know, why then the scandal of particularity, all these kind of questions were resolved by reading Barfield with this sense that human experience, human consciousness is constantly evolving. Um, it's constantly unfolding, constantly changing. And, and our times in particular, through the Christian dispensation, are the times when we wrestle with our individuality. Its upside is that it means that we can experience the one God. The downside is it risks this alienation. And if you like, the latest iteration of the Christian dispensation since um, the scientific revolution, well, actually, since the Reformation, even more, perhaps we could unpack a bit more of that if you want, but um, has sort of, as it were, flung us onto another period of alienation, lostness. Um, but I think that the practical sort of reason for that is to extend this sense of individuality. You know, so, for example, the whole human race, not just elite men, can participate in this experience of the divine. Um, that's the struggle which we're going through now because it has a lot of knock-on effects. Um, but, but broadly speaking, you know, that's why Barfield um, reawoke the sense of Christianity for me and I felt um, I could directly relate to it. Made sense of other figures like Plato and so on as well by positioning them within this broader unfolding. And so in all of that and in your book, uh, what ideas are chiefly Barfield and what ideas come either from yourself and other writers? Basically, what I decided to do was to see whether I could tell 
the Christian story, um, you know, in a short book, um, uh, using Barfield's ideas, particularly from his book, Saving the Appearances, which is the sort of magnum opus of the second part of his life. Um, and Saving the Appearances is quite a collection of different ideas, actually. Some of them are quite heavy duty, post-Kantian philosophy, um, but others are much more clearly about Christianity. So in particular, I took that element um, and I wanted to make, to see whether Barfield's ideas, um, you know, still stacked up. Um, he doesn't try and particularly search for evidence um, for his ideas in relation to Christianity. He did a lot with words, um, but not in relation to Christianity. So I wanted to see whether biblical scholarship, which of course in the 50 years or more since um, Barfield wrote that, yeah, I mean, even more than that, um, had produced evidence that was commensurate with Barfield's ideas. And of course, you know, Christianity is a historical faith. I, I don't think you can recapture the historical Jesus direct, but if there's some element that comes to the fore that discounts a certain view of Christianity, then that's a serious problem for Christianity. So I wanted to see whether it could be made to stack up. And actually, I, much to my uh, sort of surprise, but also delight, the evidence for what Barfield's saying about this has only increased since he wrote Saving the Appearances. And it's things like burial practices, um, which, you know, because of archaeology, archaeological advances, that has um, shown that there was a move away from family burials to um, individual burial practices, which suggests um, a different perception of what it was to be human. Um, biblical scholarship, too, um, you know, shows particularly that it's possible to identify sort of the essence of Jesus's teaching, if you like, by alongside all the other material um, that's in the Bible. This is a very contested area, as I'm sure lots of your listeners know, and people don't like it. But um, you can make a case from within mainstream scholarship that, for example, Jesus reformed apocalyptic ideas. You know, apocalyptic ideas and other one of these things that get going in the intertestamental period that because the individual matters and yet in an individual life, injustice may be left unmet. Um, so therefore, the idea of a judge to return to, as it were, sort out what doesn't get sorted out in mortal life starts to become very important. And I think Jesus was born into that, but reforms it by, as his more tricky sayings, like in Luke's gospel, um, say, you know, people will look here, they'll look there, but I tell you, the kingdom of God is within you. And similarly, Paul seems to go through a process where, first of all, he thinks Jesus is going to return literally. And then by the time of his later writings, he's realizing that Jesus is already the mind of Christ is already within him. And so that fits very much with what Barfield was saying, that Jesus's mission and his life, death and then resurrection um, is to show us that divinity is alive within us. And that, as the later mystics put it, you know, our eyes and God's eyes can see with one eye um, that our being and God's being is the same being without at the same time knowing that we're human and not, um, you know, straightforwardly just divine. Um, that That's part of what this awakening helps you to tease out. So broadly speaking, your book is an application of Barfieldian principles into an area that he didn't dig into as much. So it's taking the ideas about words, about these shifts in consciousness, the moving from original participation to alienation. You're applying that to salvation history through 
the Old Testament, the New Testament, and uh, a little looking over into the Greek culture at the time as well. Yeah, no, thanks for that's a good summary. Um, he, yeah, so he wrote, um, you know, essays and chapters, particularly in Saving the Appearances, which, for example, ask what a parable's about. Um, he wrote one essay, which isn't is published now in a book called um, The Rediscovery of Meaning, where he says that if he had just tracked the way that words change their sense over the centuries, he would have realized there was a turning point at about zero AD. And he would have gone looking in history where there was an individual who embodied this turning point. And sure enough, that individual he already knows about, which who is the figure of Jesus, who said things like, um, you know, the kingdom of I and the father are one, um, that the kingdom of God is within you. You know, the fire is already set alight, more esoteric sayings as well of Jesus. Um, but yeah, so it, it's to sort of flesh that out and tell, as you say, a kind of story of the salvation history. And in a certain way, what you've done in this book, it reminds me a little bit of what Jordan Peterson does. Not so much in content, but insofar as he has, he's traditionally looked at the Bible from a different angle than an Orthodox believing Christian, and he's therefore engaged with it differently. And even if I don't agree with all of his conclusions, the fact that he's helping me put on a fresh pair of glasses to look at scripture uh, has value in and of itself because it helps me to come to the text afresh and to see maybe maybe there are streams of thought here that I hadn't previously seen. And as an aside, I also really enjoyed your recent video where you commented on the recent conversation between Peterson and Padgy. I'll put a link in, in the show notes. Peterson in particular, I, ever since he first came on the scene, I just thought this guy needs to read more Lewis because I, I, I see an awful lot of what he's talking about but he's not making it quite to where Lewis is. And at least in recent months, it seems like he might be getting a little closer. I watched a discussion between Peterson and Pajot too, and immediately felt Peterson could do with a bit of Owen Barfield because he, <laughs> it seems like he was at the stage that Lewis was at before, um, you know, the famous walk with Tolkien and others where he realized that history and myth were one, or at least they could be, and they had been in the case of Christianity. Um, you know, I think that the Barfield was key to the warming up of Lewis to that idea. Um, the book that Lewis wrote before um, that was the Allegory of Love, which was looking at courtly love in the medieval period. And I think that he only could say what he said about courtly love then was because Barfield was talking to him. Um, and in particular, it was how practices like courtly love were designed to stir up the God within you. Um, you know, so you didn't go for that as it were the quick consummation of love because that would thwart the higher goal, um, which you see then manifest in figures like Dante, um, that um, love's end is not actually another person, it's the divine itself. Um, but what courtly love can do is stir up the presence of the deity, the divinity within another person, that then when the other person, you're able to reach towards the divine. Um, and so I think that a lot of that was going on inside Lewis's mind, um, which was then crystallized, you know, in the famous walk. Well, let's begin at the beginning of your book. What do you see related to consciousness when you look in the earlier books of the Bible? In a way, the, the, the sort of the pivotal bit um, is the Deuteronomic reform. Um, and so this is what happens when the Bible is actually first produced around the time of the exile. 
the older bits of the Bible, as, as we would now see it now, uh, are broadly under the old patristic dispensation. When figures like Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, um, you know, you're not quite sure were they individuals, were they archetypes, um, were they kind of cultic memories, um, stories of origination. Um, and I think it's fine to have them like that. I think that's the way they're supposed to operate. But when they wrestle with God, um, you know, God does things like make them change their name. So Jacob has to change his name to Israel and Israel means, of course, the one that struggles with the divine. Um, that's when Abraham goes to sacrifice Isaac. Um, it takes an angel to appear to tell Abraham not to do it. Um, these, these aren't figures that wrestle with the divine from within. They have encounters with God from without. And um, you know, Barfield spotted that that's a very different perception of the world. Um, it's common to what's found in other parts of the Middle East as well. Um, so, for example, you know, in, in, in this period, um, you didn't go to war against your enemies. You felt that the whole of your environment went to war with the whole of the environment of your enemies, as it were the hills and the rivers your deities fought with you. And in fact, probably your warfare on earth was just a reflection of divine warfare in the heavens. And you get lots of echoes of that in the older bits of the Hebrew Bible as well. Um, but what happens around the exilic period is that, um, well, people get wrenched from the land for one thing. So this throws into crisis the sense that Mount Zion is the place where God dwells. Where is God going to dwell if God doesn't? Well, on Mount Zion. And the figure of Moses becomes really important. I'm sure that the Moses traditions were more ancient than around five or 600 BC, but they become uh, the central new focus for these Deuteronomists. And Moses is so significant because, you know, he's clearly a prophet, um, not a priest or a king. Um, he doesn't enter the promised land, for example. He has no burial place, unlike all the kings of old. Um, he's what in the Greek you would call atopos. Um, he doesn't belong to a particular place. The place of his dwelling is in his heart, inside him. Um, he's also quite, dis, you know, quite uh, remarkably a figure who protests he can't do it and things like this. You know, he needs Aaron at his side and so on. Um, he's having much more recognisable struggles that you and I might have. Um, and then the Deuteronomists write the book of the law, and it's quite clear to me that this is a sort of meditative practice to try to cultivate a sense of individuality within you. Um, it might be something you try and live practically as well, but it does things like, for example, reform the old idea that the sins of the fathers are visited upon many generations of the children, which makes sense in a collective world, and where there's no sense of individuality to protest against that. And in the book of Deuteronomy and also figures like Jeremiah of the same time say, no, 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 um, the father's teeth are on edge, but the children will taste honey, um, i.e. what happens in one generation doesn't automatically get passed down because there's separation there as well as connection. Um, so this sense of, um, well, Judaism is born, you know, the word Jew starts to be used about this time, it becomes a kind of ethnicity, rather than being a Judean, um, someone who belongs to a certain place, and the exile um, underlines that. So you can read the Hebrew Bible as this unfolding as well. Um, Christianity takes it in one way, rabbinic Judaism takes it in another way, as the kind of Judaism which, you know, is the dominant form 
um, from after the destruction of the second temple um, and still um, the sort of main form now. Um, and so rabbinic Judaism, it's, it's, it's been nicely rephrased to me once as a kind of um, um, an everyday mysticism where the law functions so that potentially every single act of the day is a moment of disclosure of God to you. Um, uh, but again, it's very direct, very immediate, focused on the individual in community. Um, and so that's how I think rabbinic Judaism picks up on this trajectory through the Hebrew Bible as well. And as I mentioned earlier, you take a, a brief tour into the land of the Greeks. Uh, why do you go there and what do we see in that land? Well, I, I, I go there partly because my PhD was on that area and I was still <laughs> wrestling with you know what Plato was going on about. Um, but I think it, it's complementary to the Hebrew story, partly because, of course, in the intestamental period, Judaism becomes Hellenistic Judaism. Um, the Greek influence after Alexander the Great spreads around the Mediterranean world, which is why intestamental Judaism is not the same or as um, certainly um, First Temple Judaism and things like synagogues, um, apocalyptic ideas and so on start to profoundly shape. Um, Hellenistic Judaism. So I wanted to sort of tell how those two strands come together, because I think you can't really understand Christianity unless you have those two strands. Um, so, you know, the figure of Jesus really matters coming out of a more identifiably Jewish world. But the way in which Jesus matters needs Greek insights in order to understand that, um, particularly how God and man can meet, um, which isn't uh, very easy to understand in ancient Judaism on its own. So it's important to get a sense of how this unfolds. And it's illuminating too. And in fact, and you can demonstrate it rather nicely in the Greek world, because for example, within about five or six decades, Greek sculpture is born as we know it. You know, the great um, beautiful images of men and women that we still regard as, of, as uh, sort of standards of beauty they emerge very, very suddenly from older traditions, which are much more now to our eyes formulaic and sort of identikit humans. Um, and so it's, it's a good story to tell because it really raises the question, you know, how did this come about? Why mm. suddenly do you get these amazing figures who are projecting their inner life through marble as much as their external beauty? Um, and the, the statue itself can kind of intimidate you or, or inspire you. So, yeah, so the Greek makes a good story. And then the figure of Socrates is another seminal figure, as I sort of said before. And it nicely conforms with what the church fathers said, because when they looked at the Greeks in the centuries leading up to Christ, they saw God's hand preparing them in a way that was comparable to the Hebrew prophets. Whereas God spoke directly through the Hebrew prophets, he was much more subtle with the Greeks, but he was still preparing the soil for when the, the seed of Christ would come and as Christian history shows, that was where it took root and flourished. And that takes us nicely to Jesus, the, t the turning point about halfway through your book, rather appropriately. Uh, so what, what is his impact in Barfield's understanding? Well, he is um, the figure whose life kind of clinches it all, um, who lands it. Um, and after whom, although it takes time, of course, for Christianity to get going two or three centuries, um, a kind of seed is sown um, that is going to sprout. Um, and quite quickly, actually, afterwards, within a century or so, notions like free will start to get discussed. Pelagiarism starts to get discussed, which, of course, requires the sense that 
um, a written text belongs to an individual, which requires a sense that there's such a thing as an individual with relatively autonomous claims on reality. The ideas start to get going. But, you know, I think that Jesus, I think, in his own lifetime, to the relatively few people that um, he kind of came across and who understood him enough, um, seed something. But then particularly how people reflect on Jesus um, and try and retell his story so that when you read the story, it's alive for you, um, not just, as it were, reading distant history, that that really gets the expansion through the development of the Gospels in particular, um, and the way that his life was ritually remembered, say, through um, the, the Passion, which is now remembered through Holy Week and Easter. Um, this is a way of ritually entering into a felt sense of how dying and rising is an inner experience uh, where the self which you felt you understood um, and had some grasp of is let go of, which sounds easy, but actually is very disturbing at times, particularly when it, it you are forced to let go of it through suffering. But that is a way in which um, death turns out to be new life, um, that it's sort of falling into a wider life. Jesus, um, I think in his own lifetime, but as well in the way that he was remembered, starts to become a central figure for increasing numbers of people to relate to what was going on, you know, more broadly as well. Um, it resonates with the times. And then you ran off your book with two chapters, Reform and Science, and We Must Be Mystics. I love that title. <laughs> and so that sort of really takes me to asking, what's the bottom line here? What is the practical consequence of everything that you're arguing for in this book and about this evolution of this evolution of consciousness across time? Yeah, well, it's partly because, again, in my humble opinion, um, a lot of modern Christianity has lost the sense of its inner ground. Now, you know, I speak from a particular part of the world in a particular tradition um, where maybe that is uh, particularly so. Uh, I always feel very conscious that charismatic Christianity is, um, you know, after Roman Catholicism, the biggest form of Christianity now, um, and even, you know, is part of Roman Catholicism and a felt direct experience of the figure of Jesus is really important. Um, but what mystic mystical Christianity adds is the sense that this is my story primarily. You know, the calling is not to have someone else do it for you and receive that in some sort of struggle to bridge a gap between you and increasingly distant figure, Jesus who lived 2000 years ago, um, but is to know that, that your soul is in important respects like his soul, um, is a meeting place of the human and the divine. And to develop a sense of that, to become increasingly aligned and to live from that much wider sense of yourself um, is um, what it is to be a Christian. So I think that the reason why this has become kind of critical again now is because of, well, actually the Reformation and then the scientific revolution, but you know, figures like Luther, um, for their own personal reasons, as well as for quite understandable reasons, became very wary of the idea that um, the divine might be alive inside you. You know, I think it's partly because Luther felt guilty throughout his whole life and none of the practices available to him really ever alleviated that. Um, but also because the Catholic Church had become very corrupt, you know, this is no great revelation, Dante, who lived two or three centuries before Luther, who had already clearly 
um, worried about the corruption of the massive institution that was medieval Christianity in the West. Um, so it's a complicated story. Um, but broadly speaking, I think that a lot of mainstream Christianity has lost touch with this mystical inner sense. Um, you know, so Luther, for example, turned to the Bible and said, I must prove that this is so through textual engagement with the Bible. And that is still a dominant way of trying to do it for lots of Christians. The Catholic Church responds to the Reformation by saying, no, 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 you must believe the authority of the church. That's where security lies. Um, and so, um, you know, the, the magisterium becomes really, really important. The mystical tradition is always there. Um, it never gets lost um, because I think ultimately it's the one that's really in touch most directly with reality. Um, but Barfield, I think, can help us to recover that mystical sense, um, particularly through the imagination. Um, you know, the, this is where I get to in my book, really, is that we need to recover the sense that the imagination is not just a kind of fantasy generator, um, but actually um, is a truth bearer, as Malcolm Guy puts it. Um, and as I think Tolkien and Lewis showed, um, that by imaginatively entering into stories, you don't just have a good time. Something of reality that's true is conveyed to you. And then you can, because you've got a felt sense of it, not just an intellectual sense of it, and you can kind of test yourself in the minutiae of the everyday, how much you're living up to it. You can gradually be converted become conformed to um, what in traditional Christianity and Paul will be called the mind of Christ. Hmm. As I was reading your book, I had lots of conflicting thoughts and particularly the dynamism between a corporate nature and an individual nature, between me as a person and me as part of the whole. When I see scripture, I see that there is an interplay between the two in the same way that my faith is personal, but it's also corporate. I'm called to be part of a body, which is a corporate being. And I haven't got them, the ideas really fleshed out in my head, but I think there are some really interesting thoughts you can have related to individualism uh, as part of a whole. Lewis uh, explores this idea in mere Christianity where he says, well, if we're all to be like Christ, doesn't that mean that we'll all we'll be exactly the same? And he says, no, it's actually the complete opposite. It's when you give yourself to Christ that you actually get yourself back uh, more truly. And even in the nature of God, you mentioned monotheism, but also in Christianity, our God is not only monotheistic, uh, but Trinitarian. So there is an idea of community and also oneness. Don't know quite where I'm going with that, but it's just the sorts of things that were bouncing around in my head as I was trying to wrestle with with Barfield's conception of, of, of some of these ideas, as well as the idea that you could look at a lot of these developments as purely human, as purely just driven by nature. Or you can see the hand of God involved in the same way that, as I mentioned earlier, the church fathers, they saw what was happening in Greece and saw the hand of God preparing for what was going to come with Christ. Yeah, well, I mean, let me pick up perhaps some of that. Um, here's a way of doing it. Lewis is deeply influenced by Dante. Um, a lot of um, Lewis's works are, in a way, very imaginative retellings of the Divine Comedy. And I think one of the things which Lewis got from the Divine Comedy, in particular the Paradise, is Dante's realization that the further he rose or went into Paradise, the more and more he saw of divine reality, the more the souls and angels he encounters become both more and more individual and more and more part of the whole. And this is the paradox which a spiritual intelligence can perceive that say an artificial intelligence can't, that tends to break things down, um, that actually the more we become ourselves, the more we become part of everybody else, 
So if you like, it's the difference between individuality and individualism. Um, I think, you know, the modern world wrestles with this because it's it's lost the sense of what it really is to become an individual. To become an individual is not to protect yourself from others. It's to work out how to be with others because you become more and more yourself. Um, so that that that's one sense. Um, and part of the reason why I've become so wary of morality is because I think morality is actually an attempt to form artificial links between individuals that otherwise fear they're disconnected by imposing kind of moral imperatives upon you, which only ends up actually alienating for you from yourself because you feel guilty about it and so on, about living up to some kind of ideal. Um, whereas really the spiritual, the mystical insight um, is to realize, we'll take the Trinity. I think the point about the Trinity is not, not God is not some perfect community um, which, you know, always feels like it's falling on the how can the three really be one? Um, what the insight of the Trinity is, is that unity is actually more completely unified when it has these different qualities within it. This is a Coleridge way of putting it, who was very influential on Barfield, was to say that we need the ability to be able to distinguish without dividing. Um, and so, for example, you know, if I know the experience of love with someone else, I can be both the lover, I can be the beloved, the person who's loved as well as the person who's loving, and between us we share the loving too, which becomes almost like a new being between the two. And so um, love, the experience of love is Trinitarian in nature. Um, knowing is the same, you know, I'm the person that knows what's known in the knowing. And so the minute you start to look at any dynamic sense of being alive, these Trinitarian elements start to unfold. So, you know, the, the Trinity for me, most importantly, is not a social construction with kind of like moral imperatives to be more communal. It's an ontological revelation about the nature of reality from which then, you know, the way you live will definitely follow because you start to realize that your being and the being of another person is part of this one being in a kind of triangular shape. Um, but unless you have that felt desire to enter more and more into that, there's always this risk that Christianity dissolves into this set of moral imperatives that really rather destroy lives rather than open lives up. Mm. And Lewis also had that same concern in that that's all it can be reduced to rather than theosis, the idea that we are, are filled with the life of God and that this is transformative uh, and that being the key element that Christ didn't just come with some new, new rules that we had to follow, but with a life that would actually uh, empower us to live, to share in the very life of God. Now, before we wrap up this interview, I wanted to speak about Dante just very briefly. I know that both Barfield and Lewis read the work in the original Italian, uh, and we've mentioned it a bunch of times when we were reading The Great Divorce uh, in season two, and we've mentioned it this season with Screwtape Letters. And in our recent interview with Dr. Robert Royal, uh, he mentioned that the Inklings' Charles Williams wrote an important book on Dante, and that then inspired uh, Lewis's friend, Dorothy L. Sayers, to write her own translation of the book. So what I'm saying is, is that Dante's Divine Comedy is a very Inklings-y book. And that's also the subject of your podcast and next book. So uh, what are you doing with Dante? In a way, I wanted to do um, for Dante, you know, in all humility, um, a bit kind of what I'd done for Barfield, I hope, which is to provide an entry point. I'm not the only entry point, but one, because, you know, Dante too um, is this 
I mean, I would even say it's the great masterpiece of Western Christianity. Um, I really think it's almost unsurpassed in the West. And yet it's deeply intimidating and daunting and people can kind of half approach it for a whole lifetime. So I wanted to provide a way into this labyrinth because once you get in, it then just keeps yielding and it's astonishing. <laughs> and the way I've done it is it actually just following what Dante said, which is that if you can track how he changes across the course of this journey, you too will change and you'll, you'll know in your own life, not um, just by imitating what was the perceptual transformation that he himself underwent. So it's, it's a kind of Barfieldian reading. Um, you know, Charles Williams talked a lot about romantic love and how he saw that through the courtly love of Dante, and that was one way of doing it. But I've tried to do it through this Barfieldian way of focusing all the time, in, and particularly in the little moments, what perceptual shift happens to Dante in that moment. And if I can see it, it's because I can partly feel it in myself. You know, you can only really understand something if it's actually occurred to you. So that's the sort of, the, as a way, the sort of bottom up way into Dante, which I try and do in the new book. The top down way is I think that Dante was actually onto to an evolution of consciousness, which um, Barfield sort of more clearly expressed because, you know, Dante lives in this time, 13th century, so 13th, 14th centuries, which was quite a crisis point for Christianity. Um, you know, the church in a way was at its greatest and most splendid in, in the West, but there was all sorts of grassroots movements like the Franciscans, the Dominicans, the Beguines, the Cathars, sort of bubbling up all over the place. Islam was returning to Western Europe and bringing in not just Islamic ideas, but also ancient ideas. So Thomas, Thomas Aquinas, you know, engaging a lot with Aristotle and Averroes. Um, it was a time of, of immense change, actually. Um, and I think that Dante realised that um, there was a, a new phase of this individuality that was so important. Um, I mean, one way, a very simple way of putting it is that, you know, Dante wasn't a priest, wasn't a bishop, wasn't writing in Latin. Um, he was a poet writing in vernacular Italian, which was just a dialect at the time. You know, Dante makes Italian what it is today. He was just speaking Florentine. Um, so very much a particular person in a terrible period of history, actually, you know, he, he hugely suffered because of the civil wars in Italy and so on. It, it wasn't a kind of glorious time for him, but make something of Christianity again by inviting you and I through this extraordinary poem um, to traverse the whole of reality. Um, not like some sort of grand tour um, where you, as it were, remain like a detached tourist, but by entering right into it and feeling these hellish states, feeling these purgatorial states, feeling these paradisal states, you know, which Michael Wood is, to my mind, very persuasively argued is what Lewis is trying to do in the Narnia stories, um, you know, present stories which convey the meaning of the heaven of Jupiter, the heaven of Venus, the heaven of Mars and so on. Yeah, so I hope that's, uh, you know, what I uh, might have helped some people with, at least uh, with this Dante book coming out later this year. Mark, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, can you please tell people where they can find your current book, your upcoming book, and more generally where they can find out more about you? Yep, thank you. So um, it's it's all at markvernon.com, um, my website there. Um, I have a YouTube channel too, try and put regular talks to unpack these things up there. Um, and they come out as podcasts as well, which you can find on lots of platforms. The Secret History of Christianity is out now. 
um, should be widely available. Um, and my Dante book, which is called Dante's Divine Comedy, A Guide for the Spiritual Journey, is out in September 2021 with Angelico Press. Wonderful stuff. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for inviting me on. It's been great to talk. It's wonderful to share these enthusiasms. <laughs> and we'd like to thank all of our top tier supporters, Kay, Monique, Paul, Gillis, Jake, Stephen, Matt, Jeff, Chris, John, James, Kate and Rowdy. You can find out more about us at pintsforjack.com. And next week, we're going to be wrapping up Barfield Month with what I'm calling the Barfield Buffet, which is going to be a collection of shorter interviews with a bunch of different scholars looking at different aspects of the life and work of Owen Barfield. So please join us then when we'll be going further up. Further in. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.